0: invited myself and Don Champion to go to Burma in October and have a pastor's conference and teach at the Biblical School of Theology there. And so I ask you to be in prayer uh, for that. We look ahead to that particular opportunity and thankful for these great opportunities outside the, uh, the borders of our, of our nation reminds us that God works all around the world. I'm a sucker for survival shows. One in particular here, maybe some of you have seen this on on PBS, uh, a man by the name of Dick Prenike, retired at age 50 in 1967. He decided to build his own cabin in Alaska on the shores of Twin Lakes. And the first summer, he just simply scouted for the best cabin site. He would cut and peel the logs he would need for his cabin. And then Dick uh, Prenicke returned the next summer to finish the cabin where he lived for over 30 years. But the amazing thing about it is he filmed his adventures the whole time, living all by himself. And later, a man, named, man, man by the name of Bob Swerver later turned his film into a video. Um, you can all watch and see you know, this amazing man build this build build cabin by hand and... and, um, and, and meet certain uh, problems and find solutions to them with basic hand tools that he makes. Um, and it's, a, it's something I love to watch. And when it's on PBS, I, 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 I turn it on and watch it. As He Lived uh, Alone in the Wilderness. I think that's even the, even the title of it. This man was a great is a great illustration uh, to me of someone who was um, satisfied. He he was he was a man who was peaceful, content. When a circumstance would come up that made a challenge in his life, he would find a way to find a solution in his situations, and. Uh, uh, I, I, I enjoyed the, the, the peacefulness that came from that scene as though, as though there were many obstacles that would come up. He would just simply and calmly work through and find a, find a solution to it, even in the great Alaskan winters. This morning I want to show you where true peace comes from. In a message entitled, As the Lord has called you. As the Lord has called you been reading a very short book that I do recommend. It's called Just Do Something. A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. And the subtitle is this. Or How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, Etc. And what do I appreciate about um, this um, this this little booklet here on Finding God's Will is that He shows us that finding God's will isn't trying to ask God what He wants us to do in the future, but it's operating in faithfulness day by day. You see, the passage that Ethan just read here is for people who are living in confusing times and are themselves confused. People who may have patterns of inconsistency, unstableness, living in a perpetual state perhaps of worrying or fear or ebbs and flows even in those areas. And you can understand some of the reasons for it. Um, In the book, After the Baby Boomers, How 20 and 30-somethings Are Shaping the Future of American Religion, Robert Westow describes 21 to 45-year-olds as tinkerers. He writes this, Our grandparents built, our parents boomed, and my generation, my generation, we tinker. Of course, as thou points out, tinkering is not all bad. Those who tinker know how to improvise, specialize, pull things apart, and pull people together from a thousand different places. But tinkering also means indecision, contradiction, and instability. We're seeing a generation of young people grow up who tinker with doctrines, tinker with churches, tinker with girlfriends and boyfriends, Tinker with college majors, tinker living in and out of their parents' basement, and tinker with spiritual practices, no matter how irreconcilable or divergent. We're not consistent, we're not stable, we don't stick with anything, we aren't sure we're making the right decisions. Most of the time we can't even make decisions and we don't follow through. And all this means that as Christians, young, as Christian young people, we're less fruitful and less faithful than we ought to be. Now, there's some reasons that this is true and plays into things. Um, We have a lot more decisions pressed upon us than generations have years ago. If you grew up in a small town, you had maybe just a handful of people to choose a spouse from, right? With the internet and all kinds of connections and the world expanding and the complexities of life, there are way more decisions that people you will probably make today than you did years ago before some of these things, and certainly young people growing up and born in this age will as well. We're in first Corinthians seven and we've broken it up into different sections, verses one through five, verses six through ten, verses eleven through 16 last time, and now verses 17-24. through But the danger with breaking up a chapter like 1 Corinthians 7 in the smaller pieces is that we can easily lose the thread of where Paul is going. And what we need to see here in 1 Corinthians 7, though it is honed in specifically on Christian relationships in the family and others, is that Paul wants to encourage stability in all of life. And he makes the same point over and over and over again. In fact, even in this passage, you'll see this. Look in verse 17. He says, "...so let him walk in the way that God's called him." And verse 20, he brings up the same point again. "...let every man abide and remain in the same calling wherein he was called." And then again in verse 24, he repeats it. So it's kind of like a Big Mac. Bread, meat, bread, meat, bread." Verse 24, Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide, remain with God. What Paul is saying is that he's telling the Corinthians that the key to making your present situation count is to let God change you daily rather than worrying about the circumstances that He's placed you in. And if you get that this morning, you've got the thrust here of these verses. Now, one of the things Paul will open up with is this idea of a call. A call. Paul's telling the Corinthians about God's call and salvation that, that, that save them, but save them in a certain situation, a circum, certain circumstance. And this idea of a call is, first of all, it's a way, and you can see this in chapter 1, verse 9, of describing Christian conversion. God calls people to be in Christ. But that call came to a person, came to these people in First Corinthians, and comes to, has, has come to you, if you're a believer here this morning, uh, in a given social setting, a certain circumstance. And that's what he's referring to here in 1 Corinthians 7. Two realities, your call to conversion, and then the call in which you found yourself. Your setting in which you found yourself when you came to Jesus. And so God's call to Christ comes in various settings. And it's not the setting that you're saved in that is most important. That's not the irrelevant. That's not the relevant thing. It's 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 the living out the Christian life in whatever setting you may have found yourself called to Jesus in. On the other hand, so Paul so so so, so Paul's making the point that it's not your circumstances that are priority that are important here in this passage. It's what you're going to do with them. And don't seek change, he says, if you don't need to. On the other hand, though, because the settings, because the circumstances are not that important, if change comes, that's not that important either to balance this out. So we're not supposed to seek change as though it has significance in our lives. In our circumstances, where we're to seek the Lord and change may happen. I know that's a little confusing, but I think you'll see it here as we work through these verses. Look in verse 17, please. But as God has distributed or assigned or ordained to every man, as the Lord has called every one or each one, so let him walk. And so ordain or direct I in all the churches. I want you to see this morning that the situation that you find yourself in, and specifically in the context here, he's talking about people and their relational status. Those who may have had a spouse die, in verses 6 through 10. Those who are married, in verses 1 through 5. Those who, in verses 11 through 16, may, be, may, may experience uh, the loss of a spouse through separation, divorce. What Paul is pointing out here is that whatever your situation, God has designed your situation as an opportunity to glorify Him. Not an obstacle to glorify Him, but an opportunity to glorify Him. And so Paul here in verse 17 is saying, change your perspective. Change your perspective, your view. Your view on life. When you were converted to Jesus Christ, that radically affected your spiritual relationship, your vertical relationship. And therefore, it should affect then your horizontal relationship, your relationships with other people. But it didn't need to affect all relationships that were not immoral, that were not wrong. For example, some of you may have been in a specific vocation or work, and you, uh, or perhaps you were an electrician, and you were an unbeliever, and God saved you. Well, does that mean now that you're a believer, you, don't need, you shouldn't be an electrician anymore? Absolutely not. And that's Paul's argument here. Continue in the things that God has saved you in. And use them now as redemptive opportunities. Now, certainly, that wouldn't cover all occupations, like organized crime or prostitution or some of these other things, obviously. But a man is not called to a new occupation, to a new circumstance setting in life, in other, God, when He saves us, He gives our occupations new significance. He gives us redemptive opportunities to glorify Him. Notice in verse 17, he says, "As God has distributed." I want you to see that your situation, that God's designed his opportunity to glorify Him, has been planned. It's been planned. It's not outside of God's plan. And I can say this generally, that God has given you that situation to look, toward, uh, to, to look at, at it as an opportunity uh, to please Him. To be faithful in that specific situation. Some of you, when you became a believer, your spouse didn't become a believer. But God has given you that situation, He said in verses 11-16, through 16, so that you can spread the light of Jesus. Now, if that spouse doesn't want to continue in that relationship, Paul says, seek the peace. And if they are still insistent on leaving, Paul says, let them go. That's fine. But the idea here is to be faithful in whatever sphere you find yourself in. The Greek philosophers, especially those who are called the Stoics, they emphasize kind of the same concept of accepting one situation. But they did it with the view of a God who was very uh, 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 distant. And they saw God as one who just simply assigned fates. But Paul here is talking to people who have been brought to a loving Father. And there's a difference there. You see, God's plan that has been delivered to you is not out of a harsh, cold God who just rolls the dice and lays it out and that's what you get. God's plan has been delivered to you by a loving father. And you can find satisfaction and joy knowing that he's behind it all. There's a documentary called Break Open the Sky, and man who directed it Steve Baum, and he describes the opening scene here uh, 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 of, of, an, of the nature of happiness. Opening scene is called happy. And it we you, you meet a man named Manaj Singh, a rickshaw driver from India. He lives with his wife and three children in a one room home, constructed of rusted, corrugated metal held together with plastic tarps. And when they ask about his life, he says, I am not poor, I am the richest person. And he proudly talks about his work as a rickshaw driver in the crowded streets of India, the monsoons, the sweltering heat, the occasional abuse from drunk passengers going by, as mere inconveniences. And he says his, his home is good, even though it doesn't protect his family from the monsoons. Sometimes they can only afford rice with a little bit of salt, he says, but we are still happy, he said. It's a little stunning to some of us, right, who have way more than that, but are less happy. So how could Minaj say he's happy, when from our perspective, in America, some of we would say the most basic elements of happiness are, are absent. Well, Minaj and his family... They function in the bottom caste, the bottom social level system in a country that supposedly says that that system doesn't exist anymore. And they're eking out this living among a, a grinding poverty. Their home's ramshackle. They don't have a title or deed for it. There's no running water or sanitation to speak of. His kids have little chance for quality education. All the things that we as Americans would say are so important and would make somebody happy. And I'm not discounting those things. But any disruption, a drought, an illness, and economic dirt, uh, downturn could sabotage their very chance of survival. And somehow in the midst of this, Manaj is happy. I'm not told his reasons. I, I'm assuming he's just come to grips with um, this is uh, uh, the life that he's given and he's going to find joy in it. But friends... As a Christian, we operate more than just out of an attitude of, well, let's make the best of every situation. Friends, this life is not all there is we've been ushered into a relationship through Jesus Christ's work on the cross and His resurrection. He has seated us in heavenly places. In other words, He has seated us with the, with the One who is ascended on high, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He's given us that privilege and access to God the Father through Jesus dying for our sins on the cross and making us righteous. He's given us that access. And because He's given us an eternity with Him, that makes today very relevant. That makes today the opportunity to seize for the glory of God. I think you'll also notice here, not only is this a plan, our circumstances are planned, but they're also unique. unique. They're different for all of us, aren't they? Look in verse 17 again. As God is distributed to every man, and the idea there is each. This each. It's all different. What God has called you to in your situation is going to be different than what He's called another individual to. Ultimately, the same general goal of glorifying God, but it's going to look different from person to person, isn't it? There are some things, certainly, that we all share in common, don't we? And we're supposed to have instructions of how to glorify God in specific ways. My friends, your story that God has saved you and given you purpose in life is generally the same story of what God did and the spiritual underlyings of that. But how that happened is all different. And what He saved you out of and from is, is, is all different. There's a uniqueness here. And God is a God of individuals. He's a God who calls all individuals in the great community, His church. But He's a God who loves Individuals. And God has given you exactly what you need in order to give Him the glory in whatever your circumstances. And then notice what He says here in verse 17: As the Lord has called everyone, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all the churches. Paul's saying this is the general principle, this is the general uh, 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 instruction that I give all the churches. Uh, Don't look primarily, don't be driven by changing your circumstances. Be driven by glorifying God in your circumstances. If change happens in your circumstances, that's fine, Paul says, but don't live for that. So Paul wants them to see with his perspective that it's a change in opportunity that we should that should drive us, not necessarily a change in circumstances. A lot of us are prone to thinking that if only this, then I would be happy, right? If only this circumstance changed, then my life would be so much better. What are your if-onlys in life? The things that you would say, if this were true, then life would be so much better for me. But friends, the Bible teaches that the problem is not outside of us and around us ultimately. The problem is within our hearts. The heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. Warren Wearsby said, I've watched couples go through divorce and seek happiness in new circumstances only to discover that they carry their problems with them. A Christian lawyer once told me about the only people who profit from divorces are the attorneys. In our society, we have a lot of people trying to find happiness through another relationship or another person or another material possession or a new car or a new position with their job or a new change of settings but friends God has designed your situation as an opportunity to glorify Him. Change your perspective. Secondly God changes the priorities of your situation. So change your Priorities. Change your priorities. Look in um, verse 18. Paul says, Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called an uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. He's saying, Where in the world is Paul going? I mean, where did that come from? That seems out of left field. Paul's talking about circumcision. Well, Paul's saying is that your circumstances are not supreme. Obeying the Master in whatever circumstances you are faced with is. You see, he's going to bring out two illustrations of this basic principle that he lays out in verse 20, that he said in verse 17, and it'll say in verse 24. He's going to lay out two illustrations, circumcision and slavery. Now, those things in Paul's day were some of the two most divisive phenomena in the world of the New Testament. Circumcision made up the greatest religious barrier between Jews and Gentiles. Slavery, the biggest social barrier between freedmen and slaves. But in each case, Paul is brave enough to say that the salvation of God in Christ, the rescue of God in Christ to the Corinthians and the church in Corinth, has rendered those categories that were such big divisions in that world null and void. And any man or woman in Christ has been so remade that their earthly status in society, or their circumstances, or their lack of it, is irrelevant. Ultimately, not that it doesn't matter, but that in light of eternal truth, it does not matter. And so, if we're obsessed with issues and we're obsessed with our circumstances, we are distracted and we need to reprioritize our lives. Paul's saying that God has a calling for you, it will be shaped, certainly, in your own unique setting, Jewish. Gentile, slave or free and Paul certainly was a prime example of this wasn't he? But it pales in comparison with the thrust of what God wants us to understand in our circumstances and it is this the keeping of the commandments of God is everything I say it's everything because verse 19 he says something that would have been astounding to the Jew, probably not to us, but to the Jew. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Paul says the keeping of the commandments of God. And he kind of leaves that sentence with a dot, 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 right? The keeping of the commandments of God is everything. In other words, it's not your status. That matters. It is your life with God that matters, and the opportunity to do with what He's given you the max that you can do for His glory by His grace. Wondering, well, why does Paul say circumcision matters little? Well, flip over with me to Romans chapter two, verse twenty-five to twenty-nine, because this is not the first time he has explained what true circumcision. Is. And wondering what circumcision meant to the Jew, it was a sign of God's covenant with Israel that he began with Abraham <clears throat> and, uh, and, when, and was, was a command that was to be obeyed by all Jews as a sign that they were in covenant relationship with God. But Paul says something very astounding now and says that really what matters is the sign of God's covenant in the heart. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 25, Paul says this, Circumcision verily profits if you keep the law. But if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. So what really matters is not the physical marks there of being in covenant relationship with God. What really matters is your heart. And so if the uncircumcision keeps the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge you, who by the letter and circumcision do transgress the law. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. What Paul is saying is not that the ethnicity here of Jew and Gentile means nothing, God created all cultures. He loves all cultures. He created all tribes and tongues and nations. Not, and those tribes and tongues and nations, by the way, will continue in eternity, Romans tells us. So they're not irrelevant. What he is saying is that the most relevant thing is the heart. And you could be a, per, a person in Paul's day who had the marks of, of, of being a physical Jew, but what God desired for the Jew was the heart to have the marks on it. The heart needed to be the thing that mattered the most. And so what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7 is there is a new sort of obedience to the commands that's coming to being through the Messiah and the Holy Spirit. That's what counts. So don't let yourself be pressured to seeking change all the time. Change your status one way or the other. If it happens, fine. But don't drive for it. Don't, don't, don't be driven by it. In the Messiah Jesus, you have all the status that you will ever need. That's why Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3, there's not Jew nor Gentile. There's not slave nor free. There's not male nor female in Jesus Christ. Your status with Jesus is what ultimately matters. I heard a fable some time ago called the stonecutter. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, a stonecutter lived all alone. He had acquired great skills, but he was very poor. He lived in a tiny bamboo hut and he wore tattered clothing. And one day as he worked with his hammer and chisel upon a huge stone, he heard a crowd gathering along the streets. And by their shouts, he could tell that the king was coming to visit his humble village. He joined in the procession and he gazed on as the king, dressed in marvelous silk and wealthy clothes, was greeted by his subjects. And he said, Oh, how I wish I had the power and glory of the king. He has soldiers at his command. There's no one more powerful. Immediately, he was transformed into a powerful king. And he found himself riding on a large horse, waving at the crowds of the people to flocked to see him. And he said, this is power. As the summer went on, he watched the effects of the heat upon his people that he now ruled. And men and animals became weary and plants withered under the powerful rays of the sun. And as he looked at the sky, this new king realized the sun was more powerful than an earthly ruler. He said, how I wish I was as powerful as that, as the sun." He changed into the sun. He gloried in the power that he felt as he looked at the kingdoms below. And he sent his bright rays to earth, and he watched kings and princes even hide under their parasols, and he watched his powerful warriors in the, in the battlefield became weak under the sun's gaze. Even the crops in the field were under his command. Then one day a tiny cloud moved across the land. Shield the earth from the sun's bright rays. Seeing that there was something more powerful, he thought, oh, I want to be a cloud. So he became a cloud. Now he could block the sun's rays, and he felt important. He would gather all his strength and become a gigantic cloud and begin to pour down rain on the earth. Rivers would form and, and, and little rivulets of water would, would, would travel down the the, the, the hard earth where previously there was none. Water would flood the streets the cities and the farmland. And everything, trees, animals, and people seemed to be awed by the power of His water. There, Only the rocks were unswayed. He said, hmm, there's nothing as powerful as a rock. I wish I was a huge rock. And He became a stone and remained motionless and powerful. And it didn't matter if the sun beat down or the wind blew or the rain... He felt that he was exempt for all the forces that shaped the existence of the world around him. And then one day a man approached carrying a bag. And he stopped and he pulled out a chisel and hammer. He began to chip away at the rock. And realizing that the man with the tools was more powerful than any rock, he said, oh, I want to be a stone cutter. <laughs> and the heavens heard his cry and he became a stone cutter. And he lived in a bamboo hut and made his living with a hammer and chisel. And he was content. Sometimes we can be like that, can't we? That's human nature, isn't it? But the Gospel goes beyond simply telling us, just be content in life like a stoic. It goes to understanding a new identity. Because from the moment that a man is in Christ, his whole being is conditioned by that truth, that fact. His natural existence and all the circumstances surrounding him are not as important as his as his as the truth that he is in Christ. He becomes a new creation, and that's what matters. See, the new creation transforms it. It, re, uh, it, it make it, it, the distinctions are still there, but they now have their place and priority. Look how Paul illustrates this in the second way with the rest of the verses. He says this, Are you called being a servant or a slave? Care not for it or do not worry about that. But if you may be made free, use it rather, if you're able to be freed from slavery, that's fine, do it. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant or bond slave. You are bought with a price. be not you there, the servants or slaves of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called there and abide with God. I want you to see this third thing here is that all of us can be slaves to one thing or the other. That stonecutter became a slave to his ambitions to always want to change, right? And some of us are like that way. Again, our if-onlys or our complaining, right, reveals where our hearts are. We're driven by worry about uncertainties of the future. We're driven by dissatisfaction, always comparing ourselves or our situations to other people's situations. We don't look at the blessings of God. And we need to change what is mastering us and who is mastering us. What ultimately matters, and Paul was speaking to a Roman empire that existed of slaves and freemen. In fact, at least one-third of the empire were slaves. It was a little different than uh, our slavery that we think of in the southern United States in the 1800s that resemble that. Uh, there were some cruel masters, but at times, some slaves lived more like the indentured servants of, of wealthy families. Uh, you could, And it wasn't just simple, simply slave labor, but there were opportunities... Uh, as well to be government officials, even teachers, traders, artists. Sometimes you were able to buy your own freedom and choose uh, uh, to, to live free. But in many cases, being a slave actually was a higher privilege and had you many things provided to you than those who were freedmen. Still, Paul knows that owning humans as property contradicts their status in Christ. If you look in Philemon, verses ten through sixteen. But what Paul is doing here is, is not to convince. is is to convince the the Corinthians that your civil status, whatever it may be in a broken, fallen, sinful world, is an arena to which God can call you to ministry of all different kinds. God's gifts and His calls are not limited to a single culture, a single social status, a certain amount of income, a certain amount of abilities. God tells the Corinthians that for each of them there's a calling and assignment, and the call of god can be heard and obeyed wherever you are as jim eliot said wherever you are be all there that's the thrust of this or to use the cliche bloom where you're planted right but the point is that even though there is a slave and a free man distinction in this in this scripture and it was in ancient society it doesn't matter when it's compared to the status you have in messiah He says to the slaves, if you're a slave, don't be constantly seeking and worried and driven about becoming free as though everything depended on it. Don't be spending all your waking hours worrying about how to change your circumstances. He says, if the chance comes, take it. But don't be driven by that. And friends, our hearts many times are in bondage by our discontent, aren't they? Think of the example of Joseph in Egypt. The circumstances that he found himself, that he never chose. But yet, what did he do in everything, all those circumstances? He chose to glorify God in them. And one of the things that said over and over about Joseph's life is the Lord was with him. No matter what your circumstances are, Hebrews 13 says, I can find contentment because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord was with him. In other words, he was in the care of the Lord as a child of the Lord. So don't be enslaved by the circumstances of your life. If only I had that job. If only I had that house. If only my spouse was like this. If only my parents were like this. If only my brother or sister was like this. No. Don't be enslaved by your circumstances. Use the circumstances in life to be a surrendered vessel and use them for God's glory. When you have an undue concern for changing the circumstances of your life, you are disregarding what God can do in your call. I'm not saying you should never seek to change circumstances. It's not what I'm saying. Paul says the opportunity comes up, that's fine. Don't let it master your life. And then he says this to put things in perspective, remind us of these eternal truths. He says, slaves, guess what? What really matters is you're actually free in Christ. You are free, though you serve a uh, 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 a master who might be an unbeliever but is free. You're more free than he is. And then he says to those who are freedmen, and don't forget freedmen, you're not as free as you think. You're a slave to Jesus Christ. He shows the ultimate truth that really matters and frames everything. And it is a new identity And he says, here's how I know this is true. Because you were bought with a price. Which is what he said in chapter 6, verse 20. He uses the cross of Jesus Christ, the payment, the atonement of Jesus Christ, as a light shining in the darkness in chapter 6, verse 20, to guide confused Corinthians through the swamp of sexual confusion. And now here, in verse 23, you are bought with a price, being not the slaves, servants of men... He uses the cross of Jesus Christ, the payment for our sins, to form a new identity that frees the slave and gives joy to the free. When it all comes down to it, we have one Master, one Teacher, one Savior, one Lord, and it's to Him alone we owe our total allegiance. And with that allegiance, because we've been bought with a price, we need to find a firm commitment to our present position. Not always looking to change things, but being flexible. Being free from the distractions that beckon us away from the eternal truths that are cosmic and matter for all eternity. And here's what he says in verse 24 Brethren, let every man, everyone, wherein he is called, therein abide or remain with God. Live in peace carry out life as one responsible to God. The call through which people come to faith and enter the Messiah's people is far more important than anything else. Do we live that way? Do we live that way? Or do we live on the negatives of our circumstances? Paul says, I have found through the strength that Christ gives in Philippians chapter 4 that I can be content. When I have a lot or when I had very little, I found the secret. And the secret is the strength that God gives in Jesus Christ. And the secret is calling upon Him through our lifeline of prayer for power and a thankful spirit. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33 to people who are worried about everything, worried and many times rightly so for their next meal because they didn't know when that would come from. He says... You seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. In closing, I'd like us to turn to Psalm chapter 62. The Psalms are wonderful places to go to claim the promises of God for a heart that is restless, a heart that is stirred, a heart that needs to be calmed. And Psalm 62 tells us how we can find rest in God. In a minute, we're going to sing a a new song uh, uh, that... um, Uh, is a a rephrase of some of these concepts and truths of Psalm 62. But the psalmist says this, "...Truly my soul waits upon God. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you imagine mischief against a man? You shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall you be, and as a tottering fence." They only consult to cast them down from His excellency. They delight in lies. They bless their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah, or think about it. My soul, wait you only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times. You people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Surely men of low degree are vanity and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression. Become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, The power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. For you render to every man according to His work. Let's pray.